Well, hey guys, thank you so much for tuning back into the College Age Movement podcast. This week, we are in part three of our series, Greater Than. We are looking at some key verses throughout the book of Hebrews. We can spend a lot of time in the book of Hebrews. We're just doing four or five weeks here. Uh, But last week, we talked about a couple different things. But one of the main things that we talked about was that the Word of God is alive and active. And that's referring both to Scripture, the fact that something written 2,000 years ago is still so applicable to us today, and it's also that the Word of God, the words of God, the things that He is currently speaking into our lives are alive and active, that we do not serve a dead God, that we serve a God who is still speaking into our lives every single day. And this week, we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to start uh, in verses 19 through 20. And it says this, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body. So the first point this week is confidence because of Christ. Confidence because of Christ. I think we have probably all at one point or another felt unworthy to approach Jesus. We feel like our brokenness disqualifies us from being able to enter into a relationship with him or to move forward in our relationship with him, that we know our baggage, we know the things that we did this week, we know the things that we did last night, whatever it may have been, and we put our pla- ourselves in this place where we feel unworthy, that we have disqualified ourselves. The problem with that is that we're focusing on our own validity instead of the validation that Christ provided for us on the cross. We're focused on our own validity instead of the validation that Christ provided for us on the cross. You see, we need to focus on what he did. See, it's not, it's not about me and what I've done. It's not about you and what you've done. It's not about our community and what the community has done. It's all about who Jesus is and what he has done. So we need to make sure that as we are, are, thinking about approaching Jesus as we are thinking about having that conversation with God, that we would approach him with confidence because of the fact that it has nothing to do with my worthiness, but his, and that he is who he said he was. And because of that, I can have confidence that my, I'm I'm not disqualifying myself, but because of the fact that I'm a child of God, it is unearned, but I'm still qualified because Jesus qualifies me. And then the next thing it says is that it's a new and living way. We talked about this last week, but I think it's worth coming back around to. This whole idea of even approaching God was new for the group of people that the author was talking to. We're talking about Christians about 70 years after the death of Christ, but this still were steeped in Jewish tradition. That they wanted to follow Jesus, but there was still all of this tradition that they were having to kind of shed off because they had been taught things for so long. You see, You were supposed to take everything to a human priest and let him talk to God, not speak to God yourself. But Jesus, as he does, changed everything and created a new line of communication to God. And so they had to to change their perspective. They had to understand that everything was different now, that they could talk to God themselves. They could talk to God in their homes. They could talk to God in their workplaces, whatever it could have been. They had to realize that no longer did the high priest have the keys to the kingdom, that we all now have the keys to the kingdom, and that is a direct line to the creator. So not only was it new, but it was also living. And this was the author reminding us that Jesus may have physically left the earth, 
but that he is just as alive today. He was just as alive then, 70 years after his death, and 2,000 years after his death. He's just as alive today as he was when he was flipping the world upside down through his three years of ministry. That it is so important that we understand that the same Jesus who walked this planet is the same Jesus who's willing to have grace and compassion and mercy and all those things on us today. And as he taught people then, he is still willing to teach people today. It is just now through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So one of the big steps in believing that, that God will do what he has always done is that we have to believe that as God did things with people of great faith throughout history, we would, we would put ourselves in this position where we would understand, okay, well, we're going to be the community. We're going to find ourselves being those people. We're going to be the people, individually and collectively, the people of great faith. And then the big step is believing that God will do what he did with those people the same that he will do with us, that he will do the same thing with us that he did with those people. That's really hard. It's really hard to look at the heroes of Scripture and say, hey, I, I think God could do something similar with me. But as if we, as we dive into Scripture, as we actually study Scripture, what we will understand is that the people that Jesus used, the people that God used, were messy. Like, they might have been messier than you and I. We're talking about murderers. We're talking about thieves. We're talking about all kinds of people, prostitutes. Like, if he can use them for extraordinary things, for world-changing things, for history-altering things, then he can absolutely use you and I. Because once again, it's not about us, it's about him. And if we would place ourselves in, in a posture of faith, he will use us if we would only be willing. Then the author goes on to say this in verses 21 through 22. It says, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So we're supposed to draw near to God with a couple different things. The first one being this, a sincere heart, a sincere heart. Sincere means free from pretense, free from deceit, proceeding from genuine feelings, proceeding from genuine feelings. And we need to be people who approach God with that sincere heart because he has created us with the desire to have authentic, genuine relationship. God is not looking for stock answers or stock questions. He is looking for honest ones. If you don't know my daughter, she's five years old. Uh, she's from Ethiopia. We adopted her about two years ago, and uh, it's been one of the greatest blessings of our entire life, and it's had in incredible challenges and uh, incredible joy, and, and there's just so much we do it all over again. But one of the things that is sometimes cute and sometimes frustrating and everything in between is that in communication with her, while her English has gotten so much better, it's unbelievable, we still find this, this avenue of communication that, that we have with her to be distorted in lots of different ways. And one of the ways that it's distorted is that Zara has this innate desire to be right, to be correct. She doesn't want to be wrong. There's a fear in giving the wrong answer. And so as we're having conversations with her, if she's crying, we'll be like, hey, what's going on? Like, what's wrong? She, she finds herself unwilling to be honest with us and instead just gives us the answer that she thinks that we want to hear. It could have absolutely nothing to do with the situation. And you're like, wow, that is completely out of left field. But she will just give the answer that she believes will will create the the correct response from us. She doesn't want to give the wrong answer. And so we have to constantly be telling her, hey, we're not just looking for the right answer. We're looking for an honest one. 
We're looking for you to just tell us what's actually wrong or what actually happened. Don't give us what you think we want to hear. And it just reminds me of my relationship with Jesus, and, and maybe it will remind you of your relationship with Jesus too, is that so often in our in our lives, when we get into specific situations, instead of being honest in the situation, instead of being authentic in the situation, instead we just start to give stock answers, or we start to give the, these answers that we think will put us in the right light with God. But the biggest mistake that we make when it comes to our walk with Jesus is that we feel like we have to put on some kind of squeaky clean performance for his pleasure, and he cannot be fooled. We only end up trying to convince ourselves or others that we're in fact good enough. So that in our pursuit of trying to make God think that we're good enough or clean enough or worthy enough, we're actually just trying to convince ourselves or we're trying to convince the people around us that we're trying to put on a show. And and God's not fooled by that. And so instead of trying to create a picture of what we think God or even what others want to see, maybe we should start living with genuine authenticity. I think we've all been in a place where we've been unwilling to be honest with God. And I know that that for me, I've been there so many times. And my encouragement for you would be to get into a space soon and just be brutally honest with your creator. Be brutally honest with your savior. This is where I'm at. He knows where you're at. He knows exactly, but he wants you to bring it to the foot of the cross. He wants you to bring it to him because this is a two-way relationship. You see, we need to give it all to him, our joy, our thankfulness, even our anger. And I think that there's this misconception that we can't be angry with God, that we can't be angry at God, that we can't be angry with our situation, that we need to be thankful in all things. But I I just want to communicate this really clearly, that God can handle your anger, and oftentimes he'll correct you. That's what he's done with me, where I've been so mad at God that that I've literally been just pissed off. And I've said, you know, God, I don't know who you are or what you're doing in this situation, but this is absolutely the worst thing that could be happening to me right now. And I have screamed and I have yelled. And oftentimes God just meets me in the middle of that and says, hey, dummy, this is actually what's going on. This is actually what I'm doing. This is what I'm orchestrating. So we need to understand that we can be angry with God, that he can absolutely handle it. You are allowed to bring every single emotion to God, not just the good ones. There's this this rapper, his name is Andy Minio, and uh, he's just an incredible artist, and he's, he's a Christian rapper, and I know if you've heard Christian rap before, oftentimes it's super cheesy and not very good, but this is like super legit stuff. And he has this album called The Arrow and one of the songs on it, he has an incredible woman named Madeline L'Angle and she's speaking in the, in the bridge in these different places of the, the song. And one of the things that she says during the song is this. It says, the second that I'm furious with God, I'm tumbling close because you cannot be furious with somebody who's not there. So what I think we need to understand is that we bring validation to our relationship with Jesus when we're actually willing to bring real, authentic, genuine emotions into the relationship. That if we didn't believe that God was who he said he is, we would not be angry at him or we would not bring our joy and our thankfulness to him. So as we bring our emotions, as we bring our raw, real emotions to Jesus, In those moments, we're just saying, I believe that you are Jesus. I believe that you are the Savior. I believe that you are the Creator. I believe that you are all those things. And because of that, I'm bringing this to you. 
because we wouldn't do that if we thought it was just this cloud in the sky or this, this fake existence. We bring so much real, raw validation to our relationship with Jesus if we're willing to step into that space and actually have those conversations. So then it says this, it says, with the full assurance that faith brings, the full assurance that faith brings. And I don't know about you, but I often don't approach God with a faith that would give me perfect confidence in the situation. Whether I'm approaching God with something I have done or something that I want or something that I need, I am called, you are called, we are called to have full assurance in not necessarily the situation, but who God is in the situation that we would have so much assurance and confidence in who God is and how he feels about us. And yet I think I fail with that more often times than I, I'm successful. Mike Foster, this incredible speaker, he says, what if equals fear, even if equals faith? What if equals fear, even if equals faith? See, if we're constantly living in this culture of what if, and, and I think that by and large our, our culture lives in that that idea. What if, what if, what if, what if I don't get the job? What if he turns me down? What if she rejects me? What if that friend group doesn't stay together forever? What if I get hurt? What if uh, I lose the job? What if, what if, what if? That That's living with, with a, a, a posture of fear. That is a lifestyle of fear. That if we constantly are thinking about what if, we don't think about what is. But even more importantly than that, understanding that faith is even if. So even if I don't get the job, even if he dumps me, even if she rejects me, even if I lose this friend group, even if this doesn't work out, I still believe that God is good. I still believe that he has the best for me. I still believe that he's directing me in the places and the directions that he wants me to go. So as people... We need to constantly live a lifestyle of even if, individually and as a group, that we would say, even if, no matter what, I believe that God is faithful, that God is good. And that brings us to to verse 23, and it says this. It says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. You see, we have faith because he is faithful. We have faith because he is faithful. We say even if because we believe that he is faithful. You see, faith is one of the hardest things for us to wrap our minds around. It's hard to explain why would he even have it in the first place, especially for people on the outside looking in. They're like, you believe in something that you cannot see. And it's hard for us to to explain it on a regular basis. However, the author puts forth this simple but powerful statement. We hold unswervingly to the hope that we have, not because of who we are, because who he is. So we don't have faith because we think that that we've got it all together, or we don't have faith because we think we're going to get through the situation, or that we can handle it, or we're strong enough, or any of those things. It's because of who we believe that God is. It's because we believe that he is everything. You see, Jesus has made so many promises to us throughout scripture and then individually in our lives. And we should hold on tight, tightly to them because he is trustworthy. He is absolutely trustworthy. You see, it's not even about the promises that have been made. 
There have been so many promises. And you can look back at your life or the, the, the lives of the people around you. You can look at scripture, whatever it may be. And you can look at the promises. And, and this is, I, I, I want to say this very clearly, is that we don't believe in the promises because of the situations. We don't believe in the promises because of the promises themselves. We believe in the promises because of he who promised them. We believe in the promises because Jesus is the one who promised them. And there are going to be people in your lives that you trust with everything in you, that when they say something, you believe it, and Jesus needs to be at the top of that list. That if Jesus has spoken something into your life, or that you have, you have read something, you have, you've read a promise of God, believe it, because he is trustworthy. One of the things that I had to change in my own personal walk with Jesus was changing my perspective from, how do I have faith in this circumstance? Two, how couldn't I? How couldn't I have faith in this circumstance? Because what I've come to realize over you know 25 years of following Jesus is that I have so many things that I do not deserve. I am so messy and I am so broken and I am so imperfect. And yet I have a life that I can say, Jesus, wow, you have given me just unbelievable things. And on the other hand, I can see how Jesus has kept me away from so many things that I deserve, that my bad decisions and all the things that I have done could have led me down a road of a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. But because I I stayed on track with Jesus, he kept me out of a lot of those things, and I can never, ever, ever be thankful enough. Every time I sit down with somebody and I tell my story, I always say this, without Jesus, I would have been a wreck. Without Jesus, I would not be where I am today. And, And I don't know where you're at this week, and maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time, and you you can agree and say, hey, if I didn't have the, the life that Jesus set out before me, I, I would be in a really dark place. Or maybe you'd say, hey, I haven't been following Jesus at all. And because of that, I find myself in a lot of pain and a lot of suffering, and I want to get back to where Jesus would have me be. So we need to have faith in all circumstances because Jesus has made life completely unfair, that grace makes life unfair that we do not have anything that we deserve. What we deserve is pain and suffering and eternity and hell. But what Jesus gives us is the opportunity to be in relationship with him and have freedom and life life and life abundantly and eternity with him in paradise. And uh, that's an absolutely incredible thing. So then the author goes on to say in verses 24 through 25, he says this, he says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and towards good deeds not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So after walking through these calls to persevere in their faith, the author then lands the plane by saying, hey, don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. So a couple questions that we have to ask. Number one, are, how are we spurring each other towards Jesus? How are we spurring each other towards Jesus? How am I practically giving the people in my life an example of what it means to follow Jesus? How am I doing that practically, tangibly? What am I doing? Are the words that I speak, the actions I take, are they spurring people towards Jesus? What does my love look like? Is the love that I'm giving conditional? Is the love that I'm giving inconsistent? Or am I loving like Jesus calls me to love? Because if I am loving like Jesus has called me to love, then people are going to meet him and want to be in relationship with him. So are we encouraging each other towards doing good deeds? 
Not not because they earn us anything, but because we're called to do them without expecting anything in return. You see, we we don't do good deeds because we think it's going to attain this next level of Christendom. But we are called to do good deeds. We are called to love the orphan and the widow and the disenfranchised. We are called to be people who step out of our comfort zone and to love people and to do good things. Not because it checks boxes, not because it it puts another notch in my belt, not because it, it attains a higher level in heaven, but because God simply asked me to do it. And that should be enough. Second question is this, are we actively seeking community or slowly falling away from it? It's really interesting how our humanity often tries to convince us that in each new season of life, we are no longer in need of community. You see, I am as extroverted as I get. I love being around people. A full calendar is a good calendar. If there's hundreds of people in the room, that's the place that I want to be. I want to be around people all the time. And yet that still was the case for me that in each new season of my life, I found, well, maybe maybe Christ-centered community isn't that valuable to me anymore. Maybe I could do this walk with Jesus alone. And I think that the most tangible example for me was when I got married. Like, I found this woman, I found Larissa, and I said, hey, this is the most incredible human being I've ever met in my life. And because of that, I feel like her, her the relationship with her is enough. And on some levels, it is. Like, it, she, she has fulfilled me in a lot of different ways. But it ne- didn't remove me from the, the fact that, that I still needed community. I didn't need to pull away from my mentors that had been speaking into my life. They had been speaking into my walk with Jesus. They had been speaking into what it was going to be like to be married. They had given me so many tips and advice. And yet I still found myself saying like, hey, thanks for all the advice. Thank you for all the good words. I no longer need them anymore. Like I checked the box. I said I do. And now like I'm golden. Like we're good. No, that, that was such a dumb thing for me. So as I started to pull away, I felt the stress of not being in community, not being around people who were pursuing Jesus other than my wife. Because even though Larissa was pursuing Jesus and I was pursuing Jesus, it wasn't just a us thing. It was a we thing. Like we needed to be around everyone. We need to be around so many people who are pursuing Jesus. And the second that we place ourselves back into Christian community, the Christ-centered community, man, our personal relationships with Jesus took off. Our marriage got better. We, we, we built these relationships with these incredible people. And today we have people that, that surround us and give us life and that ask us hard questions about our marriage, about our walks with Jesus, all of those things. And if we didn't have that, we had put ourselves in a really poor spot. You see, sometimes community does look different, but we're never better off alone. And our hope is that the college age movement would become a place that when you're in your, your teens and 20s, it's a place where you can find family, where you can find community, where you can find people who are pursuing Jesus. See, there's this, this stat, like, this just really, really sad, that 18 to 25-year-olds, so many people walk away from Christ-centered community. They finally get the choice to do with their time what they want to do, and Christ-centered community isn't a priority. And our hope is that we would buck that trend, that this city, this, this region would be a place where 18 to 25-year-olds would say, no, like more than ever do I need Christ-centered community. I get to make my own decisions now, and my, my number one decision is I'm going to be at church. I'm going to be in a small group. I'm going to be around people who love Jesus because left to my own devices, I will become somebody that I do not want to become, and I need people speaking in to my life. And I don't know about you, but but I don't. I'm so glad that I didn't walk away from the church and come back 15 years later and say, hey, I did X, Y, and Z, and I am so broken, and I'm going to have this baggage for the rest of my life, and now I have to try to lay that at the foot of the cross now 
Instead, I want to do that on a consistent basis. I want to step into to church on a weekly basis. I want to step into small groups, community relationships, individual and collectively where I say, hey, Jesus is at the center of this relationship, this friendship, whatever it may be. And because of that, I'm going to be a better person moving forward. So let's be that. Let's buck that trend. Let's, let's be people who, who start real revival in Billings, Montana. Let's start here. Let's take it out and be a young group of people who says, hey, no, we're not walking away. We're, we're leaning harder in that we're going to be more intentional about our relationship with Jesus. We're going to be more intentional about our relationship with each other. And because, that, because of that, the world is going to be a better place. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the College Age Movement podcast. We truly, truly, truly believe in family and community, and we want you to be here on Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock. So if you're in Billings, please come. Do this thing live. Worship with us. Be in relationship with us. We would love to see you here. If you're not in Billings, hope the podcast still feeds you. We will talk to you guys really soon.